Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Monique Coven. I'm the host. I'm a certified trauma recovery coach. I've worked for over 25 years as a social worker, and I'm a survivor. The Trauma Healing Podcast is for those who are healing trauma and finding ways to navigate through this messy, uncomfortable, and challenging recovery process. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information to validate, inspire you, support you on your healing recovery journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors, trauma experts, and trauma therapists in the field that will provide information on effective trauma healing modalities, tools, techniques, skills, all in hopes of helping you heal. If you'd like to find out more information on trauma recovery healing, please go to my website at www.cptsdcoach.com. I also have an Instagram and Facebook page at cptsdcoach. If this podcast has been a small part of your trauma recovery healing journey, you can support it for the cost of a cup of coffee. You can find the link in the show notes at buymeacoffee.com slash healing trauma. Thank you for your support. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. On today's episode, I am relaunching one of the most listened to episodes on the podcast ever, and that is with renowned trauma and dissociation expert, Dr. Bethany Brand. And she is going to be really going into detail about the different forms of dissociation and how it shows up and how it relates to trauma. It is packed with information. So even if you have listened to it last year, it's worth another listen. And if you haven't listened to it, I really hope that you find it helpful. Monique. Hi. Welcome <laughs> to the <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Here I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh. So um, let's start with, um, if you could define for us, what is dissociation? Dissociation occurs when somebody is disconnecting within themselves in terms of disconnecting from their body, disconnecting from their emotions, disconnecting within their memory or their thoughts. Uh, it's normally, uh, typically somebody can feel their body, can feel their emotions, can remember events, but when they're dissociating or if they dissociated at the time something occurred, they may not have had any emotion or may not have felt it was happening to their body. They may have felt outside of their body or they may not remember uh, part uh, or all of the event that occurred. Okay. Um, are there different types of dissociation? Yes. So the examples I just gave, when a person is disconnected from their own feelings or body, mm -hmm. that's called depersonalization. They're disconnected from their person. So depersonalization. 
the type where there there's a disconnection in their memory. They don't remember all of uh, of something that's you know beyond normal forgetting. Um, that is called dissociative amnesia. Another type is called derealization, and mm-hmm. that's when the world around you is looks or seems in some way strange, surreal, flat, foggy, far away, even though it's your immediate surroundings, or you may not recognize somebody who's a well-known family member or friend, for example. Um, uh, You can also have identity alteration where you feel so different and act perhaps so different at different times that you feel like you're a different person. Hmm. Those are just some of the examples. Okay. Is there sort of a range in the severity of dissociation? Absolutely. So we all dissociate in ways that are thought of as non-pathological, not problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, if we're driving on the highway and we miss our exit and we're just not fully paying attention, we're caught up in, you know, the conversation or our minds. That's an example of everyday highway hypnosis. Um, And that's, that's normal. That's not related to stress. Then if you move down the severity continuum under stress, any of us could start to feel somewhat disconnected, you know, from our emotions. We may feel shut down emotionally. Um, for example, I heard from people at, as they watched the planes hitting the towers in 9-11. A lot of people just felt like it was surreal. It couldn't be real. It didn't feel right. That's an example of, you know, stress-related uh, dissociation. And then more severe, um, it's... Um, really common when somebody is being assaulted, for example, they may see themselves at a distance, like they're watching a movie of themselves. And then at more extreme levels where somebody has experienced typically uh, a a good deal of trauma or frequent or severe trauma, they may have the different types of dissociation I spoke about earlier. They may have those repetitively. So not just one time, but they may, you know, multiple times in a week, uh, for example, feel depersonalized, the world around them may feel derealized, um, or they may have ongoing amnesia if they have a dissociative disorder. What about um, many people, and I wanted to ask you if this is um, like maybe a, a part of, of dissociation, many people who have had chronic trauma, developmental trauma, and you know were not able to cope with what was going on, they um, have difficulty in the present staying present. Is that a a form of dissociation? It could easily be. So Frank Putnam um, described dissociation as the escape when there is no escape. Mm -hmm. And so a child who's being repeatedly traumatized, they can't uh, typically fight the person. They can't typically run away because it's an adult. Um, And so they may go away in their mind or they may disconnect from their emotions or their body. And it's a survival mechanism. And when they're using that during trauma, of course, that's, you know, a brilliant adaptive survival mechanism. But the problem is if uh, abuse is repeated, trauma is repeated, the person may learn habitually to disconnect from emotions Um, or they may, well, that's just an example. They may frequently start to dissociate so that even when there's a mild stressor or they think they're going to be hurt later in life, even if they're not actually in danger, they may start to dissociate again 
or under milder stress, it's become a habit. And, it, and so it can happen again and again later in life. Yeah, because one of the one of the things I hear a lot, and it, it was in the case of myself as well, in the past was having a lot of difficulty staying present when you know that there is no there's no danger. So you're yeah. saying it's it, it's it's habitual habitual yes. learning. Okay, exactly. It becomes like a conditioned response. It can mm-hmm. be unlearned too, but typically that takes a lot of work because there were years where that was your survival. Um, and so it really takes some some work to help your brain learn you don't have to do that all the time now. Please remind me to ask you about how you do that because okay. <laughs> people are going to want that answer. Absolutely. Um, so maybe you could explain to us then, you did a little bit, why so many uh, trauma survivors dissociate. Um, it goes back to Frank Putnam's yeah, quote. Yeah because Mm -hmm. they didn't have any other way to manage. They were little (laughs) and there was somebody big that they didn't control that was um, scaring them, harming them, threatening Mm -hmm. them. And so that's what they did. And so it becomes repeated over time. Yes. Yes. If if dissociation was helpful and protective um, when trauma was occurring, why is it later called like a disorder? I love that question. And I remember when I was first in my training, I wondered that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's survival. Why is it a disorder? And it's, it's because for some people, it starts to happen so often that it gets in the way of, for example, their relationships. You know, intellectually, they may feel this is my partner. This is somebody I know I can trust. And they feel nothing or often enough, they don't feel something toward that person. Mm -hmm. I remember one client I worked with, he felt nothing for his children and he was bereft. I mean, it, it caused him agony. Um, And yet as a child, he had to learn to numb out like that to survive a, a lot of verbal abuse. So it can begin to cause difficulties functioning in relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just depersonalization or derealization. If the person is having amnesia, for example, you can imagine how at work, if you can't remember at all, I mean, we all have memory problems, but let's say <laughs> you, you really can't remember, suddenly it's your turn to get up and speak at a conference or to teach. And suddenly you can't remember at all your topic. It's like, you feel like I don't have those skills. I don't have that knowledge. Now that's an example of a more, uh, potentially a more severe dissociative disorder but where the person really does have access to different skill sets and different sides of themselves at different times, it can really get in the way of their functioning. Mm-hmm. I heard someone say, um, you know, what was used to protect us um, and, and help us survive in the present ends up causing suffering. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, now, wait, yeah. if you don't mind me just saying a little bit more about yes, that, when, when somebody has used dissociation a lot, and I mean a lot, so it's a dissociative disorder, it can be terrifying to let go of dissociation, even though it also causes problems. Um, and I just liken that to, you know, if, if somebody's out in the ocean and they feel like they're drowning or close to it, and they've got on a life preserver or life ring, they don't want to give that up, even yeah. if... They actually could get help, you know, and just reach for help, let go of whatever they're holding on to. And they just, they feel paralyzed. So it can be extremely scary to let go of that. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it because it's unknown and the unknown feels dangerous? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And probably dozens or hundreds or who knows how many times dissociation kept them from feeling the full blunt force of what was happening or remembering right. it fully. And so it's, it's, it's in the same ballpark, if you will. Um, although I don't mean to offend your listeners, but it's it, like if somebody has been drinking for years to not feel and not remember earlier traumas, and then they give that up, that is so, it takes such courage to do that because they're smart enough to realize some feelings and memories may start coming. Right. And it's the same way for somebody who dissociates a lot, like, oh my gosh, I, I was just talking to a client today and you know, she wanted to get in touch with feelings. And then when I explained that that would mean getting in touch with all your feelings, not just the good ones. And then she's, you know, her eyes widened and like, oh, I didn't want that. I don't want to feel the betrayal and all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. So um, did we already talk about what types of dissociative disorders are there? Um, A little bit. I can say more. Um, yeah. Okay, so there's depersonalization slash derealization disorder, where the person experiences some of both or either uh, depersonalization or derealization. Dissociative amnesia, where that's the primary main dissociative symptom they have. Um, There's a category of uh, kind of a mixture of different symptoms that don't really fit any of the other categories. So that's other specified dissociative disorder. So maybe they have some amnesia and derealization, depersonalization is just an example. And then um, the one that is generally considered the most severe uh, dissociative disorder is dissociative identity disorder. Um, uh, And I just start calling it just to make it easier, DID. Mm -hmm. That used to be called long ago, multiple personality disorder. Yes. Yeah. So what, um, what can, what can people do to help, to help themselves dissociate less often? So it's a process. It's not fast. And in some ways, although people can get impatient with that, it's also may make them feel safer. It's not like suddenly you stop it on a dime and all your feelings and all your memories come back. Uh, For example, um, So they have to, first of all, be willing to work at it because it's a habit. They have learned to tune out or to disconnect. And so they probably want to do a little bit of thinking and recognizing in what ways has that been helpful and what are the ways in which that now gets in my way? Because you have to really be motivated to let go of a habit, whether it's eating too much or spending too much or what you have to have a motivation. So if they can really think about, is this getting in my way and how, and then beginning to work on recognizing the earliest warning signs, the earliest signs that they're starting to dissociate. So for example, for some people, they start feeling a little bit tingly or sounds get far away or they start feeling spacey. Um, there's warning signs like that, if you will. And then it, in the beginning, people generally can't catch it very well because they're just so used to it. But if they keep working to try and catch it and then don't beat up on yourself, 
um, because it's a habit. So it's just like somebody wanting to work on not overeating. You're not going to be perfect and catch it and turn it all around, you know, instantly. It's just, it's just not realistic. But if they keep working and give themselves huge pat on the back, every time they catch themselves dissociating, every time, really working to recognize, boy, it's hard to see something that has just become habitual. And then, you know, so that's a step. And then beginning to try and figure out what was I trying to get away from just before I dissociated? Was it a feeling? And if so, what feeling? What are the feelings I'm trying hard not to cope with, not to feel? And then they think about for each of the different feelings, well, what are some other ways to help me tolerate and manage that feeling? So it really is, it's all about feelings um, and learning new ways to view your feelings and to manage them. Along with that, there's some techniques that are called grounding techniques, where with somebody who's been uh, seriously traumatized, their brain is going to be on hyper alert. They, they are going to be on hyper alert looking for danger. Um, and so at times it may start to feel as if they're kind of slipping into the past, like the past is happening all over again. That can be just an emotional flashback, or they might see a picture in their mind of something from the past that was a traumatic event. Or if it's a really serious flashback, it can be like a movie running so that they literally aren't seeing the world around them anymore with a really bad flashback. They can be completely immersed with all their senses. So beginning to catch what the very early signs that they're starting to dissociate and then they can work on what's called grounding. So uh, I'll just talk for a minute, pretend it's me. I'll talk out loud the way a, a survivor might. You know, I'm noticing that I'm starting to feel that spacey feeling and it's starting to feel like I'm in danger. And so I need to look around my room and you can't see me doing this <laughs> because it's a podcast, but I'm literally turning my head and looking around the room and seeing where am I? Where am I now? I am safe now and reminding themselves of the current date. And I know this is real cognitive. We'll, we'll get to some of the other senses in a minute, but just in the beginning, anchoring themselves in the present reality. There's nobody here who's going to hurt me. And I'm an adult and it's 2020. I'm actually safe now. And then as they're saying that to themselves, they're looking around the room. And so that helps the brain begin to recognize, okay, okay, I'm starting to have, I was starting to think I was under threat, but I'm not. Then they can start um, using their senses to really connect with here and now. So they can use all five senses if they can find ways to do that. So if I'm in a session with somebody, if I'm seeing them starting to look kind of far away and spacey, for example, I might ask, are you starting to dissociate? And then I might say, look around the room and see what are your favorite things here in, in my office. And, and they can do that in each room in their house if they like. Describe something. Um, and, you know, if it's in a session, I'll have them describe it out loud. Or if, you know, the person's on their own, they can just say it in their head. Describe the colors 
the shapes, how big it is, really describe it as if, if um, somebody who's not there could begin to visualize it. And then could they touch it? Could they actually use the sense of touch and feel the texture, the coolness, the smoothness, warmth, whatever the, the texture is? If they have something that they could drink or eat or you know, a piece of gum or candy, can they taste it? And, and is there a smell and describing that to themselves? Um, so they're using basically all five senses. And that, if you will, kind of wakes up the different parts of their brain that were starting to mm -hmm. shut down. And so it's using their senses to get back in their body, back in present moment. And they've already been reminding themselves of the date. So those are just real common grounding techniques. There's more, but those are some really basic yeah. ones. So um, there was the, the, the cognitive piece, I'm safe, yep. but then you match that with, with the somatic experiences yes. of the present. So, yes. okay, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. Um, what about, you know, let's say someone disassociates so much that it's interfering with their life. Is there treatment for, for disassociation like that? Absolutely. Um, but I'm going to put out that there's also uh, some difficulty finding therapists who have been trained in treating dissociation. So that is a real problem in the mental health field. And it's one of the things I work very hard to, uh, in my career to change mm -hmm. because we need to be able to help people who've been traumatized because there's a lot of them and a lot of them dissociate. Um, mm. But anyway, in the training for most mental health professionals, there's actually very little attention given to more, uh, like complex trauma and including dissociation. So if a, if a survivor is recognizing that my dissociation, you know, I'm, I've been trying to manage it on my own, um, you know, and there's different books out there for survivors to, to work on. If they've maybe tried that or they just, they don't want to do it on their own, they want to find a therapist. Um, there's a professional organization called mm -hmm. the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation and they can look them up and they have a, a find a therapist link. Um, and, you know, I can't vouch for all the therapists in that directory, of course, but they at least can see who has indicated that they want to be listed in that, that um, listing. And in their area, is there anybody who's gone and gotten some training on dissociation? Um, if they're in the United States, there's the American Psychological Association Trauma Division, Division um, 56. They can look and try and find somebody who's had some training in trauma there. And internationally, there's the International Society for the Study of Traumatic Stress. And they also, on their website, have a Find a Therapist link uh, and directory. Um, so there's some places they can go and look. And I would assume that in many countries, many locations, they might be able to look up the local um, state or province, for example, um, social work organization and call them and ask, you know, is there a social worker or, you know, there's similar um, uh, directories, listings, professional organizations for psychologists, uh, all, all levels of different types mm -hmm. of them. And they can call and say, Who, who's got training and trauma in my area? Yeah. And have to, you have to ask questions. Um, yes. So would you suggest that, that, um, you know, if they find someone, who is trained in trauma that they specifically ask if they've had training in dissociative disorder? Yes. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Do they know about dissociation and, you know, from the whole continuum, uh, like dissociation's actually really common. Um, and it occurs in other disorders too. So like somebody with just plain old panic disorder in the midst of a panic attack, they can have depersonalization. And that does not mean they have a dissociative disorder. Um, there's other disorders where people dissociate and it's not a trauma based dissociative disorder. Mm-hmm. But if somebody really feels like they're dissociating a lot and they think it might be related to trauma and they've got a trauma history and maybe some of the symptoms of PTSD, then I think it's important that they, uh, if they can find a therapist who knows about treating dissociation, that they, they get a therapist like that. If, if it feels like a good match, it, it's still very important to feel like it's, this is somebody who listens and cares and is professional. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. I wanted to actually ask you a little bit about DID. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying that in the past, it used to be known as um, multiple personality yes. disorder. And, um, you know, it's been portrayed often in uh, movies um, as something really um, scary. Or, And I, I just wanted to ask you if... Um, like, does the, does the, maybe you could explain to us a little bit, like, does the person actually have dif- different personalities or parts and how do they get to that place where they become um, different parts or different personalities? Okay. So if I forget either of those questions, make sure to bring me back. I'll try. <laughs> um, but first I'm going to respond to um, with outrage and, um, just outrage. Mm-hmm. The way it is, uh, DID is so often portrayed in the media is just dead wrong. It's mm-hmm. stigmatizing. It makes me livid. And I do um, what I can to also try and fight that, including, you know, writing a, a, a column or a short paper that was published when Split came out because it portrayed people with DID as monstrous and, and mm-hmm. dangerous. And then I did a research study and we looked in one of my treatment studies um, to, to look and see, were these people who, uh, who had DID, were they you know, frequently involved in the criminal justice system? Were they often in, in prison or jail? And no, the vast majority of people with actually any kind of mental illness, but including DID, which in my opinion is the one that is misportrayed and stigmatized the most, mm-hmm. um, they are at much greater risk to be harmed by others than to harm others. Wow. And that's where the disorder starts from. So that's part of what makes me so upset about it. Mm, um, it yes. It's not fair that the media, um, some of it's due to lack of knowledge, but some of it is also, you know, in my opinion, if you're going to make a movie or a series, um, I don't think it's fair to, to misportray people. Like it, it, at this point, most people recognize that that would be wildly wrong to do about autism or schizophrenia or any racial group right. or any other marginalized group. Why, why is it okay to do it with DID? It's, yeah. it's bogus. So you can see I have a few feelings. No, I, I, I totally relate um, because usually, I mean, I, I know two people who um, have experienced that and they, um, ha- their, for, their trauma has been the most horrific that you could even a person can possibly endure and so that is why they went on to um you know develop as a safety mechanism we'll get into that after um but but what i'm saying is that they've already been through and that's what you're saying too so much harm so much pain and now they're getting this 
you know, not being recognized, not being comforted, not, um, you know, being understood properly. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just not okay. And then mm-hmm. unfortunately, some of the psychology textbooks misportray it or only portray like the stereotypes. Um, uh, you know, they often, I, I, when I did a study, a review of, of psychology textbooks, just a few years ago, every last book in the 10 that we reviewed talked about the, the movie Sybil, oh. which was 30 years old. <laughs> and oh, none of goodness. them, uh, uh, very few of them, really emphasize mm. the research on DID that was done by legitimate scientists. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the ways I've been trying to change all this is to challenge those textbook authors. Um, mm-hmm. And Division 56 of APA gave awards to the best textbooks that did the best job of accurately, scientifically portraying uh, dissociation mm-hmm. and trauma um, and not just going with sensationalistic stigmatizing stuff about trauma-related disorders. Yes, yes. So you asked, and I didn't get to, how does it come about? Yes, yes. Okay. So if somebody develops DID, it typically, almost always, um, they have a history of having been very, very chronically, severely abused Mm -hmm. from a very early age. So like, I'm talking like younger than six and going on for quite some time. And with a child that young, there really is no escape, right? When it's somebody who's older and and doing things. And so they escape into their mind. um, And over time, they compartmentalize those memories. And we're still trying to uh, understand the neurobiology of that, but we're getting some pretty exciting glimpses of what dissociation does in the brain. There is a neurobiological basis for dissociation. We don't understand it, you know, because you can't do fMRI scans of an abused child and not protect them, right? So we only have this research with adults. But what we're starting to understand is that when somebody is dissociating, there are certain parts of their brain that are becoming less active. For example, the part of the brain that tunes into how their body feels. So that goes back to depersonalization. And if they're being traumatized, they may kind of shift into a different state where they don't feel their body so much. And they don't even quite remember it later on what happened. It's sort of vague. And they do, they do their best not to remember it, not think about it. And we know with some memory research that if we actively avoid thinking about some things, sometimes those memories get harder and harder over time to access. And so as best we understand it now, for people who develop personalities over time, it appears that there's different states that they go into and there may be a state or states that that's where the memories, the feelings, the, the, the sense of betrayal, the terror, the shame is kind of compartmentalized there. And that that part of them feels very young. Um, And it's sort of just compartmentalized away. It's neural networks in the brain that aren't activated unless they're in that state. And then there's another part of them that, you know, goes to school and goes about their day and has to survive. And generally speaking, they often don't want anybody to know what's happening and they want to forget it. So it's, it's a part that may not access those traumatic memories and feelings very much. And so that's just an example of how two different states over time could emerge. 
And then over time, they can get elaborated on and there can be other parts, you know, a part that's very angry about uh, the abuse, for example, a part that's more nurturing, a part that's more of a teenager. I mean, they, they can develop different parts because we all have parts. That's, yes. that's an important concept. We all have parts. Like mm-hmm. right now, I don't have DID and I don't have amnesia for this conversation. Later tonight, I'll remember that we talked, but I'm talking to you in a professional way. But when I talk to my cat later tonight, I'm going to probably talk a little baby talk, you know, (laughs) and I'm going to act different around him because he doesn't care about DID research. (laughs) I relate. (laughs) So we all have different states. That's not weird. That's how we are. Mm-hmm. Frank Putnam wrote this book <laughs> called The Way We Are, and he reviews in a gorgeous, not over-the-top scientific way how all of us have parts, all of us have states, and there's different state disorders, like a panic disorder, somebody who goes into huge panic attacks, that, that's a change in state. Mm-hmm. Or bipolar disorder, that's a change in state from manic to depressed and, you know, kind of euthymic, uh, the name for, you know, in between states. Those are state disorders. Well, so is DID. So it's not, it's not that they are different people, right? Although some people feel like they are. So I don't want to feel, I don't want to sound disrespectful to them. They feel so different. They truly feel like they're different people. Mm-hmm. And others just feel like, you know, it's different ways of being me. It's different sides of myself. Mm-hmm. But I have different sides of myself. I just don't have the amnesia. And my different sides of myself are not bound up with trauma. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't a survival technique for traumas. Just I'm in professional mode now later. I'll be in kitty cat mode yeah. <laughs> or you know, talking to my kids or you know, playing, hanging out with my friends. Those are all slightly different states going to sleep. That's a state change that we all go through. Um, do people who have DID, do they always know that they have it? Absolutely not. Although some, it's actually amazing. Some people figure it out. I had an 18 year old recently who figured it out. Very smart girl who knew how to use the internet quite well. And she looked up her symptoms and she told her mother. Wow. (laughs) It was amazing. Yeah. Good for her good for her. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times people don't know. And it's perplexing. Like, why don't I remember, you know, I I had a sandwich sitting on the counter, and I just went to eat my sandwich and it's gone. And I'm the only one home today. Like, Mm. where'd my sandwich go? Or I don't remember how this cut got on my arm. And I have this vague sense, I did it, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. And I don't, there's often a a sense of sort of dread or fear. I don't want to know. I don't want to remember. It's scary. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, this is a disorder that many people feel very scared about. And that's where I feel like the mental health professional needs to step it up and learn about this and help people grow more comfortable in being themselves and how to manage this. Oh, and I'm just thinking, um, access to, I mean, the two people that I know were very fortunate to work with wonderful people um, Mm. for many, many years who are very familiar with this. But I mean, finding someone who knows how to work with DID must be really challenging. It can be. Some people are very lucky. I know a few uh, people who got very lucky and they found somebody right away. But I also, I've literally gotten emails from people around the world asking me, you know, and 
Tanzania, how do I find somebody? Or in this part of rural Australia, and I obviously don't know the people everywhere. Um, and here, even in the US, which is where I live, there's many good trauma therapists. Once they get good, they tend to have waiting lists because they don't have enough hours in the day to treat all the people that need treatment. Right. And it's especially the case if somebody really knows how to treat dissociative disorders. So it can be quite a journey and difficult to find a therapist who's got that training and availability. Mm-hmm. What can someone do if they think they have um, disassociative disorder? Um, if they feel like they want a therapist, I would recommend they start trying to find out if there are therapists in their area who have training in trauma and dissociation. Mm-hmm. Um, They can also read some of the self-help books that are out there. There's some good ones. Um, uh, They can try those techniques I was talking about and keep practicing those. They can go to those websites where I said, uh, I I suggested there's links for, or whatever it's called, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. where they have lists of therapists. They can look and see if there's somebody in their area. Mm -hmm. Are there any books that come off the top of your head that you could suggest? Yes. And while I get the exact right name, I'm going to walk over to my bookshelf. Um, so, uh, uh, the stranger in the mirror by Marlene Steinberg is a good book that talks about all kinds of different forms of dissociation. Um, and a book that gives more techniques, um, is by the first name of the first author. There's three authors is Steele, S T E E L E. And it's coping with trauma related dissociation. Okay. Um, uh, a group of researchers and I have done a study um, that took us several years to do, and it just got published last year, where we had therapists and patients around the world um, who could participate if they understood uh, English and were willing to work together in the study as a pair. So both the therapist and patient had to agree to participate because we wanted the therapist to be aware of what we were teaching in our videos and our writing materials um, so they could help the client with it if there was any questions or troubles with the material. Um, That got published in one of the top journals in the trauma field. And it's been one of the most downloaded articles they've had. Wow. Um, Is really exciting. That is the first time that journal ever had a treatment study for dissociative disorders ever. Oh, that's wonderful. What is that study called? The Treatment of Patients with Dissociative Disorders, Top DD. And it's the Top DD Network study. Um, Network meaning that we made a bunch of videos, 45 videos that we put online in a secure website. You had to be in the study to access the videos. And then each week there was like a 10 to 15 minute video that we linked with the, the content, what we were working on educating the patient and therapist about was linked with a journaling exercise for the client to do, and then a practice exercise for the client to do. So earlier when you asked me, how do you start to, to deal with dissociation and, and manage it if you want to? So some of the techniques I was describing are exactly from that study. So you write about the, one of the weeks was how dissociation protects and how it also can get in your way. And we would have people think about and write about what are the ways it's getting in the way at this point. Um, and uh, any fears you have about beginning to let go of dissociation. And, you know, there were lots of journaling exercises like that. 
anyway, people had access to these materials for two years, each, well, as often as they wanted. It was 45 um, videos. They and their therapist would watch them for a week, work on them for a week or two or three, however long they chose, and then made their way slowly through the whole educational program. And we showed that doing this program helped patients reduce their PTSD symptoms, their dissociation, their self-harm, and they also began improving their daily functioning. And we got patients and therapist report, and both people, both members of the, the treatment team, saw it that way. They both saw the patient was making progress, and both patients and therapists learned, we, we tested their knowledge at the beginning of the study and at the end, and there were improvements in knowledge, including the therapists, which is one of the other reasons we had therapists to participate, so we could train therapists as part right. of a research study. Like, here's how you treat it. And we got some really amazing feedback. I'm, I'm going to be wow. talking about it in a couple of weeks on a webinar. Where can people, I mean, are, that, that 45 videos, are you going to make that program available in the future? That is our hope. So we've written up the program into two books. There's a book for therapists and a book for patients. It's the workbook with all the materials that were in the actual study for the patients. And it's called Finding Solid Ground. Um, both books are by the same name, and, and they each have somewhat longer titles, but one's the workbook and one's the therapist book. We're hoping that within the next year, those will be out, and they're going to be published by Oxford University Press. If, if people want to go to my Facebook page, I'll certainly announce it when it's available there. And the Top DD Study has a Facebook page. We'll be absolutely announcing it there. Um, okay when they're out and available. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, can you tell us about, you have on your website um, something called Teaching Trauma? Is that yes. what it's called? Yeah. And what's the purpose of that? Well, so Besides it's a whole website. <laughs> that's the purpose. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of different websites and that website is specifically to make it easily accessible, scientific information about the different types of trauma, the prevalence, the symptoms related to it. Um, I have information in there about controversial um, issues related to trauma, like uh, are patients with DID uh, dangerous? Um, uh, stuff about the false memory uh, debate. You know, can you have false memories? Are memories of trauma accurate? We have that debate summarized mm -hmm. with the research literature there and available. Um, and Initially, we thought of the site as mostly for educators, but I also knew in my head, because I, I get emails all the time, reporters want to talk about it. Students around the world ask, you know, which is fabulous. They want me to interview with them or help them on a paper. You know, I can't do it all. <laughs> so I made a website, like, here's the sources. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted teachers to teach about it, including, you know, professors down to, you know, teachers for younger kids. Mm -hmm. And so we've got web, we've got um, teaching materials on there, like some of the top names in the field. There's some of their PowerPoint slides. They generously allowed us to put up some of their slideshows up there. Um, teaching activities, like classroom activities to get people to learn about trauma are up there. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. So the idea is to get it out there so there's accurate information, not sensationalized 
stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> insert a different word. <laughs> um, okay. And last I checked, we had over 325,000 hits on that page. Wow. So, interesting. Wow. Well, yeah. I'll definitely put your, um, your link on there. Um, Thank you. But- I don't want to end without asking you a few more questions about <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> about um, DID. So, is the um, is the what is your take on the um, the goal of treatment for somebody who has DID? I think the goal should be helping them live a better life, and I'm obviously being vague there. A better yeah. life in the way that they would view a better life. I think that's their life. They get to decide. Now, of course, as a therapist, I'm going to give some strong input about getting safer and not hurting themselves and not attempting suicide, you know, learning a range of ways to manage their feelings and their PTSD symptoms and dissociation. That's what I would like for them. And we talk about that over time. Um, Some people with DID want to gradually move towards having sort of a a working democracy inside if they have different parts. They want them to be able to work together rather than to be at war and to be fighting. Others, you know, want to go even further than that. And they want to learn if, if, if they want to try and learn about integrating parts over time. That's not everybody's goal though. And I think clients should get to decide that. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I'm <laughs> far from an expert at all, but what the little, little piece that I've been able to see with some people that I've um, talked to is sometimes they really are so attached to those parts, they're not, they don't want them to go. That's right. That's exactly right. So, you know, this is the them that they have known through their lives or in treatment, they get to know if, if they prior didn't know about different parts, they learn about them. And so some people choose to, to live and work that way. Um, and others want an, an alternative. And there's, this is a continuum as well. <laughs> so there are some who integrate a few parts um, because they feel like they don't really need those parts to be separate anymore. They're not mm-hmm. in danger. So why have a trauma-based part that's suffering? They help heal the trauma stories related to that part. And mm-hmm. then that part wants to integrate with another part and get to feel different and better and older. It's also not unusual as parts are healing, uh, you know, a person with DID is healing their parts. It's all one person, but the parts start to feel older and more capable. And so getting the the experience of getting older is very common. Um, Yeah. It's an amazing disorder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And um, wow. Um, I, I, I knew someone who, um, also had, uh, she was a female, but she had parts that were male. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very common. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and, and often the question comes up, why? Why would a female, uh, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a woman who's biologically female have male parts? Well, in my experience, usually if you ask those individuals, they will say, well, it didn't feel safe to be a girl. So I wanted mm-hmm. to have a boy. Yeah. I wanted to be a boy. And then that stuff wouldn't happen to me. But of course, that's a child trying to control stuff that was so beyond their control, right? Um, yeah, even abuse often keeps going, even though they have male parts. It's, it's, that's their inside way of coping because they had to flee inside when the outside of the world, the outside world was so out of control. Mm-hmm. Um. In, in cases, in, is it always different or um, are people who have DID, are they, 
are they generally in, in aware of when the parts come or not? Are, do they, are they conscious about that? Do you mean, are they aware when they're switching personalities? Yes, that's what I mean. Yes. Um, typically, in the beginning of treatment, they don't know that so well. They may know okay. a little bit. They may recognize, I feel younger now. Um, typically, that's one of the things we work on in therapy to help them become more aware. And then over time to not do what's called losing time so that they don't have amnesia for gaps of time or periods of time in their life and for their behaviors. But that takes a while, uh, usually quite a while, to get there. So they're really tracking their life moment to moment and more aware of triggers and emotions and different ways to deal with them besides just switching. Mm-hmm. Wow, this was, this was, uh, I, I'm so grateful. This was so <laughs> wonderful. I, I appreciate your time and I'm hoping Absolutely. that I didn't leave anything out. Is there anything that you want to add um, before we close? Um, I want to offer hope to people yes. who have been terribly traumatized and who dissociate in particular or their loved ones. This is, it's awfully hard to be in this spot and to recognize the, the prices that you're paying for trauma, but there is hope. There is healing. You can have a better quality of life. Unfortunately, it does take work, but it's totally possible. That's just a wonderful way to end. So again, can you tell us, I will put it in the show notes, but can you tell sure. us how people can find you? Yes. Um, so I have a webpage um, very creatively called bethanybrand.com. <laughs> I'm on Facebook as Bethany Brand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we have a top DD Facebook page. And I forgot to mention, we'll have a new study coming out where we're having videotapes that are going to be online and, and writing exercises, just like that first top DD network study. We're hoping to have that available maybe somewhere um, toward the end of, of 2020 or beginning of 2021. And, and we'll be announcing that on our websites too, that we're recruiting, we're recruiting. We would mm -hmm. love to have participants. Oh, okay, great. Now, yeah. um, you have a training coming up very soon. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I sure do. And that's listed um, on the websites too. So I'm looking at my calendar. Um, on October the 9th, from 12 to 3.15 Eastern time, I'll be doing a webinar for three hours where I'm talking about the, the dissociative disorders and, and specifically some of the research findings from these top DD studies I've done. Um, and so I welcome anybody. I mean, uh, lay people are allowed to join. There's a, a cost. Um, therapists are allowed to join, obviously, and they can get continuing education credits for it. Oh, that's wonderful. Good, good. Bethany, thank you so much. You're welcome, Monique. It was my pleasure. Oh, all right. Take good thank care. You. Thank you for you helping too. survivors. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. If you're interested in trauma recovery coaching and you want to find out more about working with me, you can visit my website at www.cptsdcoach.com. Mm -hmm.